Hey everyone, and welcome to Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and we are doing another special episode in around the film series Long Hot Punk Summer that is being put on by our friends at Emissions Records and Hot Docs Cinema on Bloor Street. And this is going to be going on all summer. You can check a, a few episodes back. There's an episode with me and Dave from Emissions Records, Dave KW, for those of you from Toronto, uh, sitting down and discussing American hardcore. And this episode is going to be a reposting of an episode I did with the filmmakers of I'm a Cliche, the incredible polystyrene documentary that came out well, about almost two years ago now. And uh, I just thought it'd be cool to repost it so you can hear it. This is going to be screening in uh, a few days, actually, at Hot Docs on Bloor Street on Saturday, July 22nd at 9 p.m. It's polystyrene. I'm a cliche. Our friend Charday Hardy is going to be doing an interview with the filmmakers. And you can check out Charday on this podcast way back on episode 94. I think we'll probably do for a part two at some point. But we'll, we'll talk about that in the near future. You can go check out this interview with her though interviewing the makers i believe the filmmakers of i'm a cliche anyway i'm not going to ramble on anymore uh i did listen back to this episode and realized that there is some audio problems uh towards the end but you'll hear it you'll hear it and it kind of ends abruptly because of that but that is it uh oh and i should run over the rest of the documentaries that are going to be screening the fugazi documentary instrument will be screening on friday august 4th at 9 15 p.m I'm probably going to be attendance for that one. And a band called Death is going to be screening uh, the documentary, A Band Called Death, about the band Death. Not the death from Florida, the death from Detroit. And this is going to be on a Thursday, August 24th at 9.30 p.m. These are, uh, yeah, this is part of the canon. The canon of great documentaries around punk. And there's also some additional... Uh, kind of mini screenings that are also being organized by Emissions Records, including Punk the Capital, which is going to be having its Toronto premiere at Innes College Town Hall. If you're in Toronto, you can probably figure out where that is, but it's on 2 Sussex Avenue, and that's going to be on July 27th. This thing has never, uh, never ever played here in Toronto, so pretty cool that this is going to be doing its premiere here and uh, you can find out more information about all these screenings at Emissions Record Shop underscore Toronto. This is also all part of Emissions Records one year anniversary series, which is kind of, you know, it's got a lot of cool stuff coming up on July 30th. There's a punk photography poster flyer exhibition that's going to be going on. And uh, you, can check out, you can check out some of the previews that they've got up on the Emissions Records Instagram. But oh my gosh. Some wild, wild stuff. Stuff that's never been seen before. A lot of times now, with some of this punk ephemera, like you've seen it a million times. There's definitely stuff um, that's going to be showing up here that I've never seen before. Uh, they've also got a show with Poison Ruin, an incredible band on Relapse Records, and the homies in Homefront, who will be uh, hopefully coming on the show real soon. i got to get going with that with Graham. Anyway, that's for me to think about. So for you, sit back. Relax and enjoy the makers of I'm a Cliche, the polystyrene documentary on Turned Out a Punk. Uh, Celeste, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Good to meet you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. As I was just kind of briefly mentioning off uh, air, your movie's incredible. Uh, I watched it last night, was in tears. I think... 
you know, I play in a band, uh, so it hit me on that level. Uh, it hit me as a parent. It hit me as someone who suffers with mental health stuff. Like, I just think so many people are going to be able to see this thing and come away with something because ultimately it's not just about a legendary musician. It's about your relationship with your mom. I think that's, you know, one of the, I would say, you know, comments, uh, most common comments we get, you know, about the praises about the film is how people can relate to different aspects of the, the story because of these, yeah, these universal themes um, of, yes, relationships between people, between mother and daughter, parent and child, and, and the relationships of all the people that we interviewed um, that they had with my mother, whether they knew her or not. Yeah, I find it. I find one of the things really fascinating about, um, yeah, like you know, like obviously people are fascinated by children of quote unquote celebrities, but I think it's much more fascinating to me, especially doing this podcast, is having people on who have kids that uh, you know grew up kind of around this stuff, like especially punk music, because it's something so left of field, you know, and it's something so kind of like off the beaten track that I find you know people's journey within it really interesting and i'm just kind of interested not only in your journey celeste but your journey paul like what is your relationships with punk kind of prior to doing this movie celeste i guess yourself first um you know my only relationship to punk was was through my mother um i wasn't alive when you know the the original uk punk scene started and i can't say i was a huge punk fan um you know as a teenager um, and my introduction to punk was really through my mother's music. But then, you know, after I started listening to Gem for Adolescence, I then started to listen to other, you know, punk artists of the same era. And then I, I grew to appreciate punk, um, but through my own personal kind of, um, you know, relationship with it. Were, were these, you know, like people like Bruno Wizard and, and, and you know, obviously the people from Killing Joke and John Robb, like were these people around in your life when with your mother like were these people that you just kind of like were just like fixtures of growing up type thing uh people like bruno definitely bruno was actually one of my mum's oldest friends so i i you know i remember him from you know from very a uh, very early age and yeah john rob was a good friend of my mum's as well so some of those people definitely i knew them and and uh you know, they were they were also very good friends as well as like contemporaries or colleagues of my mother's. But others, you know, I didn't I, I met for the first time when when I did the interview. So, you know, people like Nana Cherry. So that was, you know, really, really wonderful. And how about yourself, Paul? Like, I know you've done stuff with Sleaford Mods, but did you have a relationship to, you know, not only punk, but I guess the X-ray specs prior to this? Well, I mean, my first memory of punk is like when I was at school and this kid called Gary Walsh wrote sex pistols on his exercise book and just seeing you know that name it was like what's a sex pistol and then you know listening to never mind the bollocks for the first time would have been my first exposure and then this was around the time of nirvana who were obviously very influenced by punk and i knew who x-ray specs was and i knew oh bondage up yours but then through meeting celeste and then starting work on this film really discovered x-ray specs and polly and for me i mean for me punk is not necessarily you know only a music genre is an attitude. You know, I kind of got into techno when I was a teenager and the, the kind of ethos around techno and the DIY culture was very punk. So I think, it, you know, as well, as well as being a genre, it's an attitude. It doesn't necessarily have to mean, you know, a type of music. It's all about how you approach art and your attitude 
in terms of you know that culture of doing it yourself and you know in a way rejecting you know the old order and, and not really following the rules well i think you know i think it's fascinating you know talking about a group like sleaford mods jason from sleaford mods was on the show a while back and just seeing how this sort of attitude like you're saying this sort of i don't know like thought pattern way of looking at the world like is just part of popular cultures now like nirvana is part of it like all these groups have kind of come from it but like going back and looking at it it really does start with you know all these for first wave punk groups but specifically the x-ray specs and i think uh, the way you know your mom dressed and the just her approach to fashion just like all these things which she was so ahead of the time, you know, and so ahead of the curve, like obviously punk was a fashion movement, but her approach to it is something that it, it feels like it took the rest of the world a long time to catch up to. Absolutely. And, you know, interestingly is my mum is considered, you know, exospects and, and polystyrene are considered to be really, you know, kind of a key part of that early punk movement. Uh, but my mother never really considered herself to be a punk. Um, and there was also this kind of subgenre within punk, which was new wave. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so extra respects were also, you know, they were called a new wave band. And what they were doing was was quite different, was quite unique, I would say, from from the rest of the punks, especially when you mentioned um, the style, stylistic aspect. You know, visually, my mum was going for something very different. Um, and as you said, it was very ahead of its time because um, she was looking at, for example, uh, she was playing with secondhand clothes, recycled clothes, um, you know, what we would call now vintage, you know, um, this was, these were things my mum was really, um, she was using and she was sort of uh, re-adapting re or, or remaking clothes from existing clothes um and also the day glow aesthetic you know the day glow colors and then mixing up different genres so there was something quite re retro about um what she was doing visually um so yeah they definitely stood out um from the other punk punk bands in that sense yeah like it's obvious that they were you know a massive band right from the get-go they're playing on top of the pops and these are, are very important singles and then the lp is of course legendary but it, it it's it feels like their their time really comes in the 90s like when all these bands like i think kathleen hannah being in the documentary thurston moore as well like really reflect like that 90s alternative explosion like that's where the x-ray specs sound i think really gets understood by sort of the wider punk universe yeah i think i'd agree with that and it's, it's interesting i think people talk about you know the velvet underground that at the time they put out that record you know, it didn't sell in great quantities, but everybody that bought it, you know, formed a band. And I think with X-Ray Specs, the people that love X-Ray Specs, um, they were influential because they went on and formed bands. And the sound, I mean, X-Ray Specs are lumped in with the punk bands, but I think Celeste said, you know, Polly saw it as pop music, which it was. I mean, if Polly wasn't in X-Ray Specs, you can imagine maybe an alternative timeline where maybe she worked at the Brill Building, you know, mm. writing three-minute pop symphonies because she had that, edge of being a great songwriter, you know, throughout her career, you know, after X-Ray Specs when she did her solo stuff. So I think she's a cut above, you know, a lot of the punk musicians because of the quality of those songs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really comes across on that 90s record, um, which is fairly obscure. Like, I think it only had that one pressing briefly on CD, never came out on vinyl. 
but I went back and listened to it and oh my God, the songwriting is just so awesome. Like the lyrics, like just the whole, everything about that record. Like, I think it is really an overlooked album. Absolutely. Yeah. That's conscious consumer. Mm -hmm. um, definitely an overlooked album. Um, and, and yeah, like full of, full of gems in terms of like perfectly crafted pop songs. And yeah, as Paul said, um, you know, X-Ray Specs, I think, and Polystyrene definitely belong in the pop, as much in the pop genre as alternative, um, because they were they were both, you know, it was commercially accessible music. And that's why the um, the early fans, you know, the, the, the core sort of uh, fan, uh, the groups of fans were all very, very young teenagers, mm. you know, um, many of whom had come to punk through X-Ray Specs, but they weren't necessarily punk fans. Uh, they just loved X-Ray Specs and, and they were also into, you know, whatever was popular at the time. So um, I think a lot of people, they don't really realize that with X-Ray Specs. They probably think they were a bit more underground than they were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, like, you know, obviously they're playing on top of the pops, like it is, and there is that mainstream, like you're saying, crossover, kind of appeal to the songs that are being written because they are great pop songs. But I think the thing that's really interesting is that second wave of, of British punk that happens almost kind of immediately after where you have, you know, bands like the homosexuals and bands like the desperate bicycles, like the DIY, DIY kind of explosion where everyone just sort of like, it wasn't these rock bands anymore. I guess it would have been the kids that were going to the X-ray specs shows early on starting their bands, like sort of immediately after in the wake of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, go on, Paul. No, you go, you go. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I mean, I was just going to say, like, one of those people was, happened to be Nana Cherry. So, mm -hmm. you know, Nana, Nana Cherry, um, she was uh, kind of part of the Slits uh, at a very early age. She was sort of affiliated with the Slits, um, I think, which was like 14, 15. So that's when she was starting to go to gigs and that's when she would have come across um, my mum at, at this very, very early age. And I do think there were a lot of artists who um, came up in the 80s, you know, like um, even that whole like new romantic scene um, and even the like early dance scene, Acid House, a lot of these kids, they were really inspired by, by X-Ray Specs. Yeah, certainly with the neon too, right? Like the, even the aesthetic of it is just, you can see how that's taken up later on. Absolutely. Um, it, there's a part in the movie where you talk about, uh, you know, Polly's trip to New York, you know, and just sort of this sort of life-changing, not necessarily in a positive way, experience. And she, you, she mentioned smoking something. Um, I guess it probably was dust, right? Because that was such a, a huge part of New York, unfortunately, uh, underground culture at that time, I would imagine. I actually don't know what dust is, <laughs> so I'm learning some. I'm learning something from from you. I, I I always I thought it was maybe some kind of opium. Like she actually had no idea what it was. So what what is dust? Angel dust was like it's a PCP. It's it was like okay. originally a horse tranquilizer, and then they called it angel dust because the Hell's Angels would make it, and it was. It's something that like a lot of punks sold in in New York at the time. Like it really was sort of the drug of of young punks in New York um, around then. And it's something that when you when you smoke it, especially if you're not prepared for it, even if you're prepared for it, from what I've heard, it just uh, it, it, it's it's a very heavy, heavy, almost like psychotic break 
like drug experience, you know, like there's just can, and, and a lot of people uh, are affected for life from it. Wow. Yeah, no, I didn't see, I, I was always, you know, this was something that my mom didn't even know um, what she'd taken. And uh, I, yeah, I assumed it was, you know, what can, I'm so innocent, you see, when it comes to <laughs> drugs, what, what can you smoke? <laughs> Yeah. So I was like, oh. <laughs> well, and especially it seems like that's one of those ones that would have been passed around. People put it on cigarettes. Like you used to hear about people buying fake weed that was actually just mm. PCP on something um, in the seventies because it was so cheap to produce, and it was just you know once again that's I guess why the punks took took to it so much in New York. Wow had had you heard of that, Paul? Yeah, I'd heard of Angel Dust um, mainly because of the Faith No More album that's um, called Angel Dust. And I know what PCP is and I've heard some horrific stories about people on it. There's one story, if it's apocryphal or not, that was um, this guy did a load of PCP and basically fucking like ripped his face off. He went psychotic in front of a mirror. So, you know, it's not something to be to be tampered with, is it? No, there's a, there's a story about a rapper... Uh, a West Coast rapper, I believe, who smoked it and, and ended up eating his girlfriend. Um, oh. When, it, like, it just is, it's one of those drugs that, like, you know, people aren't prepared for it and they get it. And it just, you know, because it, it's not a, it's a horse tranquilizer. It's definitely not meant for uh, human consumption the way a lot of other drugs are. Yeah, I mean, like, in, in the UK, um, there's a drug called ketamine, which is something that um, is, is very popular. And, you know, that's a horse tranquilizer and it's, quite an odd thing to think oh, I'm going to take this thing that they, they they use to knock out horses it's a weird mindset that we'd want to do that I think yeah no and it's it's something that also I guess comes back to a theme that keeps coming up on this show which is just like the reality is that punk was this amazing place because it gave young people voice but it was also a terrifying place because young people were exposed and to things that you know they shouldn't have been in a lot of cases and exposed to things very young to you know like they were 19 in the x-ray specs yeah, and younger and younger. So yeah. like Laura, Laura Logic, for example, was 15 when she joined the band. You know, she was still doing her, she was still going to school <laughs> and had exam and had exams to 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 do as well. So yeah, they were very young, they were quite innocent. Um, and you know, in terms of drugs, they really weren't exposed to much apart from, you know, weed and 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 alcohol. So yeah, I think New York was, it was just on another level, you know, and it was um, a, a real eye-opening experience, but also, yeah, quite, um, quite, there were very dark moments and it is a pivotal moment in the film for that reason. It's funny you also have that part in the movie talking about the smell of CBGBs, because that is something that I've really come to, to, to understand through people's experience that was just the defining feature of that club, that it smelt terrible yeah i mean it, we, we went there and as you know it's now a fashion emporium and yeah. it, it doesn't smell nasty anymore it's kind of like they've kept some signage and some graffiti on the walls and you can sort of be in there and you can maybe close your eyes and maybe try and picture it but as you say a lot of people talk about the stench and you know we've all been in you know dive bars or kind of clubs like that and you know, I, I kind of have a chemical memory of places like that in London in my youth. But these days, you know, with, with public health regulations, those kind of smells are outlawed, aren't they? And yeah. It's kind of like, I wouldn't say it's a shame, but, you know, I'm quite glad that I was alive at a time before, 
you know, these health and safety regulations kicked into the degree that you didn't have like, you know, those kind of formative experiences of being in, you know, these kind of dive bars. Yeah, I got to go to, I got to play CBGBs, but it was towards the end and it did smell, but I, I don't think, the, the thing that people said about back in the day is they used to cook chili there and they had oh. Healy's dog walking around that would just, you know, use shit and pee on the floor or whatever. Oof, yeah. Um, <laughs> what way you step, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I, who wants to eat that chili too? <laughs> yeah, I mean, eating food at punk gigs in the sort of, you know, 70s, 80s or into the 90s, probably not the wisest move. <laughs> No. Um, what, uh, one thing I found fascinating and you brought up Laura just before Celeste was the relationship between, uh, Polly and Laura that, you know, and how they kind of reconciled the first time, I guess, through Krishna, right? Yes, that's right. They both joined the Hare Krishna movement, um, in the like early eighties. Mm -hmm. Um, but co co coincidentally, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's something that once again, like back to New York, it's something that around the same time really took hold in New York and tons of hardcore bands were Krishna bands. Like it really was something that sort of in the same way that, you know, Angel Dust had consumed the scene. Like this was something that kind of like became like a huge fixture. And I guess a lot of kids escaping drugs would turn to it, too, at a certain point. I was just wondering, you know, what are your experiences with the church? What was that like for you? being involved, going and moving into the temple, like, you know, it seems like it was something that was a little bit of a stabilizing part of your life for a while. Yes and no. I mean, it was, um, you know, again, a very wild ride because, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not, it's not the church of England, you know, <laughs> it's, um, it's, uh, it was a, an alternative community. It was a commune essentially um a religious commune um so yeah just some some you know like wonderful memories and and then some kind of crazy stuff um but for my mom it was very important for her was you know spirituality and I think it's an important point that you made I think a lot of kids that, that were punks or they were just involved in any kind of counterculture movement whether that was the hippie movement um in the 60s or or yeah punk rock in the 70s um a lot of them were kind of broken from their experiences um often with drugs and um and i guess a over hedonistic lifestyle and so it kind of makes sense why they went towards something like harry krishna because it in, in it kind of offers a lot that, you know, these alternative scenes offer in terms of, you know, dance and music and these like ecstatic highs, but um, it's all very straight edge, clean living, no mm -hmm. drugs, no alcohol. So I think that that may have been like part of the, um, the appeal. Yeah, definitely. I think the veganism or the vegetarianism too, I think it, a lot of it sort of naturally fit in with a lot of the way hardcore kids were kind of going at that sort of mid eighties, early eighties point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and the vegetarianism, that's also interesting, you know, the the vegan, the crossover between like vegan and vegetarianism and, and punk. It is, it's it's really like, it's it's amazing how, you know, growing up and going to punk shows and, and being around this stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, like all this stuff to me was just kind of like par for the course, veganism, like a lot of these talk, conversations about politics that are, you know, much more in the mainstream now are just part of the punk discourse, I think. 
Yeah, definitely. It's, it's kind of um, my, I mean, my, as I said, you know, my, my first exposure to, to punk was on, you know, seeing that name Sex Pistols, and it was around a time of, you know, when Bleach came out, Nirvana's first album, and I think Kurt Cobain was um, somebody that, as far as as far as I could see, in terms of rock musicians, he was the first person that would, you know, not in terms of vegetarianism, but in terms of talking about, you know, uh, women's rights and feminism and compared to the people that kind of came before that I, you know, listened to, like whether that was, you know, Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses, this was a man that had a very, you know, progressive attitude, particularly in the early 90s, you know, in terms of who he championed in terms of a band and the causes that he believed in. And I think, you know, that does come from being influenced by punk and the kind of things that, you know, punks believed in. Yeah, I think I think once again it goes back to songs by the X-ray specs, like not to overstate it, but like songs like Identity, like there are just so many songs that offered perspectives that you weren't necessarily getting from, as you say, Guns N' Roses or just mainstream music in general. Mm, no, for sure, definitely. I mean, around that time, you know, I mean, I think the grunge thing was, um, you know, there were probably only a handful of truly great bands and there was a lot of kind of copycats and same thing sort of happened with punk, didn't it really? But I think the post-punk scene is also interesting and worth thinking about, you know, because I think people that followed in the immediate wake of punk that were kind of just copying, you know, the three chords and the leather jackets and the mohawks weren't as interesting as the bands that kind of came out, you know, as Celeste said, around that kind of period of new romanticism, but then also that kind of post-punk period and, you know, the band, bands like television, I think, were really interesting in terms of, you know, not just the sound, but, you know, the um, the attitude and, and the things that they kind of championed. Well, exactly. Like, I think punk is always taken up as, well, not always, but like it, it has a tendency to be taken up as this one very defined, you know, spiky haired leather jacket thing. But there's that amazing moment where you're showing the flyer from the Roxy with the first X-Ray Specs show. And if you look up there, there's Susie and the Banshees playing with Iron Maiden. Like it was a, a door opening for all sorts of music, like ska, like all sorts of stuff came through the gates in the wake of this thing that, you know, it was called punk at the time, but like new wave, post-punk, like it all came flooding in and afterwards. Mm. No, it was a, a, a great period. And I think, I think art, you know, music, I don't know what music is like now for young people now, because obviously, you know, I'm not a young person, but I think, when I was growing up, there were very much people that were in tribes. You know, you could be a goth or you could be a metler or you could be, you know, into like, you know, you could be a raver. And I think now music has got to that point where I don't necessarily know that those tribes exist anymore because young people today seem to just have a really eclectic taste and, and, and suppose a more, um, not necessarily a fusion, but, you know, they don't necessarily think that you can only listen to one genre of music. Whereas when I was a kid, you kind of had to fit into one of those sort of subcultures. And I think it's really changed now. And, but punk is perhaps part of that because it did encourage you to listen to reggae and it did encourage you to listen to other forms of music, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's also a, a fat, a factor of like, you know, the fact that you had to make a choice economically back then because you only had so much money to buy so many types of records, whereas now you can listen to anything. Yeah. Thanks to Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't listen to Neil Young because he's, uh, he's taken his stuff off there, hasn't he? Good no. Neil. No, but we still have YouTube. YouTube's the biggest bootlegger of them all. We everything's up there. It is. It's kind of like <laughs> you remember Napster, and that Napster was so punk, wasn't it? I mean, obviously it was illegal, and you know they got into a lot of trouble, but um, that was a very punk thing, I thought. Oh, it was. It was the ultimate home taping is killing the music industry moment, where you could listen to anything, everything. You had, yeah, like it was. It's it's the product of Napster. I think after that, it just changed the way young people listen to music forever. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with, because, um, you know, there was that argument, wasn't there, that taping was going to kill music. And then <laughs> latterly, the argument was that Napster and downloads are going to, you know, kill music. And then the thing was, as soon as the music industry learned how to monetize it and take advantage of it, it suddenly recovered. And now again, artists are being exploited. And I can't remember who it was, but someone told me like a couple of years back who works at a record company that the expense accounts are back because the music industry has now recovered. They've, they've sussed out the online thing. And so, you know, when a point when, you know, the expense budgets got cut and the music industry was suddenly in trouble, now it's all back again. So, you know, you can waste money, waste the artist's money on silly lunches and, you know, drinks and stuff and all the kind of things that those perks that were there before have now come back apparently. We gotta start something new, some form of new home taping or something to get those expense yeah. accounts eliminated again. Um, <laughs> I, I, one thing I wanted to ask you both about was just sort of the stylistic approach to making the movie, where you have uh, it's all done through narration, and I, I love that. Like you don't get distracted by the way people look now. Like you just you you just it just lends it to the story. And I was wondering if that was something you went into you know that thinking about or is that something that kind of came throughout the process of making the movie yeah that was a decision from i think probably maybe the first time celeste and i met with zoe and we talked about you know the kind of aesthetic and how we wanted to tell the story and it was it was influenced by you know a, a great chronicler of punk history julian temple mm -hmm. um seeing the filth and the fury and seeing the band in silhouette and then i went to a q a and he was talking about that and someone in the audience asked him what it was for, you know, was it to sort of make them like witnesses to a crime? And he sort of half jokingly said, no, it was because I didn't want the audience to see them overweight in their forties. <laughs> and um, I thought about that and it, it stayed with me. And then, you know, Asif Kapadia in his films using archive, you know, in Amy and Senna and Maradona, and you're just hearing voices and you're, you're seeing these images. And for us, because the story is told across multiple decades, if you're seeing Don Letts or if you're seeing Vivian Westwood in the present day, it's a distraction. Mm -hmm. You know, the human voice doesn't change that much over time. And so those people who are, you know, our chorus, our witnesses are telling us this story and we can kind of give an impression. We're immersed in the audience as if it's sort of being told in real time. I think it helps the audience feel a much closer connection to, you know, what they're seeing and hearing. Yeah, no. And I was just wondering, is it, is it, did it change the way you interviewed people? Celeste, knowing that this was going to be, the 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 outcome like did it, 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 it free you up a little bit hello so i think yes. celeste you cut out i think i think she might have a um dropped off yeah I, I can answer that yeah please go on absolutely um, yeah i mean i think when you're interviewing someone and it's not a camera interview they relax a bit more because it's mm -hmm. not performative. It's much more experiential when they're talking about, you know, where they've been, what they've seen. So I think people really relaxed when they were talking to Celeste because, you know, she's asking people about her mum. And, you know, if it was, if, if I'd have been doing the interviews or someone else that wasn't Celeste, they wouldn't have, the people would not have opened up as much as they did. So, you know, I've said before, you know, Celeste, now that Polly, you know, isn't here with us, the only person that can tell the story really is Celeste. Um, and I think because, you know, she's up, she was having these conversations with people, we got some really interesting insights. And also Celeste, in some cases, was finding these things out for the first time, you know, which is an interesting place to approach a film with, I think. 
Absolutely. How much of the archive is in the book Dayglow and how much of it is yet to be seen? Because that archive looks incredible. As like a, a collector nerd, I was like, oh my gosh, that looks unbelievable to go through. You there, Celeste? I think, is she ringing me? So two sets. Sure, no problem. I think she, she might have a connection problem. Yeah, no problem. Um, I can edit all anything, so don't worry. Yeah, I mean the with the with the archive. I mean, Polly is, is, is obviously you know with all the artwork and everything else, and Celeste is um, you know making you know really great efforts to sort of get this this work out there because a lot of it hasn't been seen before. So mm. there is still stuff I think that you know didn't quite make it into the film, um, but we were you know blessed to have that amount of stuff to work with, and it, particularly from the video footage that came from Falcon Stewart, um, who was Polly's manager. Um, and that stuff, I mean, it'd never been seen before. And um, Falcon's uh, widow, Alice, was really no. generous to sort of let us use that. Oh, she's back. Cool. Oh. Just talking about archive and stuff. Yeah, I was just asking, yeah, Celeste, how much of that archive is there left to be seen? Like, because it just looks unbelievable on, uh, on the film, like you're going through all that stuff. Uh, Paul and Celeste, thank you so much for coming on the show and anytime you want to come back, cause I got a, a million more questions about the X-ray specs demo tape and whatnot. Please know the door is always open and, and thank you for that movie. Thank you. Thanks so much.